All right, good morning, everyone. The next couple of hours is going to be, well, I can't say it's going to be fun, but it's going to be important, all right? The Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Mark is where you need to be. Gospel of Mark, if you've been paying attention this week, you know we've already spent four plus hours on this. And we're going to probably spend at least two hours this morning and possibly another hour this evening, if need be. And I don't know if we're going to come up with any answers. But the way this is going to work this morning is you're going to be doing most of the work. So um, we can go ahead and do this. If you don't have a Bible dictionary, make sure you have Bible dictionary nearby. You'll need that. If you have the, if you need one, just let me know. They're all over the place. Bible dictionary, if anybody needs one, you're welcome. Yeah, that's one. There's an extra one here if you need it. All right, so you'll probably need that. If you have the Blue Letter Bible app on your uh, mobile device, you'll probably need that. If you have a study Bible, this is the time you can actually use it. Um, and any other tool that you have, at, you please have that ready to go. All right, everyone ready? Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 23. Mark 2, verse 23. And it came to pass that he, the he there is referring to Jesus, so it came to pass that he went through the cornfields on the Sabbath day, and his disciples began, as they went, to pluck the ears of corn. Right, everybody got the picture in their mind? Right, they're walking through a field. It's the Sabbath day. And what do they begin to do? Pluck the ears of corn. Seeming like a no big deal, correct? Verse 24, And the Pharisees said unto him, Behold, why do they, referring to his disciples, on the Sabbath day that which is not lawful? So in the Pharisees' mind, what had just occurred in verse 23? They had broken the Sabbath, right? And that's pretty serious, and obviously an Old Testament law. Would everyone agree? All right, so they had broken the Sabbath. Jesus says unto them, and he said unto them, verse 25, Have you never read what David did when he had need and was unhungered, he and they that were with him? How he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar, the high priest, and did eat the shewbread, which is not lawful to eat, but for the priest, and gave also to them which were with him. And he said unto them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. Right? Seemingly, you probably would look at that and think, well, there's, there's not, it's not a big deal. It's not that, that difficult of a passage. But this is a very difficult passage that has created massive amounts of problems and has created maybe one of the, at least in modern history, one of the most popular and well-known Bible skeptics. 
because of this passage of Scripture. This has caused all kinds of problems. So let's go through this. First of all, just let's do some basic observational exercises here, okay? What are some of the very first things that you see or you observe in the text that you think is important to take note of or to mention? And remember, you're going to be doing a lot of the work this morning, so just be prepared, okay? All right, what are some things that jump out at you of, from the text? Anything. Okay, Sabbath day. Right? Okay, right. Okay. All right. So what I'm hearing, and correct me if I'm wrong, you're, you're immediately drawn to the conflict here about the Sabbath day. Right? Is that what everyone is immediately focused on? And I can see why. I can see why, right? Because that's the whole argument in the, in the discussion, right? Can we, can we say this from an observational standpoint? That from verse 23 to 28, the entire, the t- entire situation that occurs here seems to focus on whether they did or did not break the Old Testament Sabbath law. Can we all agree that that's what the, the text seems to be about? Agreed? Okay, all right, so, so that, that's a, a very just quick observation. This clearly is about the Sabbath. Now, there is nothing wrong with that observation. It's 100% correct, all right? Does anyone else see a second thing? So the text itself is dealing with questions related, or a question related to the Sabbath, right? What's well, a second thing? Okay, good job, okay. We have a cross-reference, the cross, so the second observation is that this is making a reference back to 1 Samuel. Does anybody know? Verse 21, verses 1 through 6, or chapter 21, verses 1 through 6. 1 Samuel 21, 1 through 6. You may want to write that down. We have, a, we have a story here about the Sabbath. And in the story, Jesus references back to 1 Samuel 21, 1 through 6. That's a very important observation. That's a critical observation. All right? Third, okay. Well, probably doesn't mean nothing, but the disciples, Oh, that's, a, that's an interesting observation. I didn't even think about that. That the text seems to imply that the Pharisees don't really accuse Jesus of doing it, but his disciples. So it seems to imply Jesus actually did, isn't the one who did the eating, at least in Mark's account. Would everyone agree with that? Yes, no? That, that's a good, that's a very good observation. That's a very good observation, okay? And we'll, we'll, we'll have to do some other looking, but that, that, that's an interesting observation, okay? All right, anything else? So what do we got so far? Number one, it's a story about basically dealing with question, a question about the Sabbath. Number two, it makes a reference to 1 Samuel 21. Number three, it appears that possibly Jesus didn't do the eating, but the disciples did, all right? Number four. Okay, before we get to that, all of these are great observations, but there are two observations everyone has to see because they are the, they are the problem. There's two absolute massive problems in this passage. I mean, Grand Canyon size massive problems. I mean, like, what do I do? Oh, okay, oh, now, 
That's good. Law and grace. That definitely. We won't put that one down. We'll, we may have. We'll. We'll circle back to that. Okay. Oh, yes, there's a massive conflict there. Okay, but before we get to that one, all right? So either Brenda already knew this or Brenda listens to a certain podcast. Okay, all right? I don't know which it is, okay? But whichever, I'm just glad someone, someone knows. All right, the, here's, the, here's what we need to look at. Here's two of the, of the major issues. You may want to sep- separate these two. These are the two problems, right? The first problem has to deal with someone by the name of David. Is David mentioned in the passage? What does the passage tell you about this guy named David? He went in and he ate what? The showbread, right? Or the shoe bread, according to the King James, but the showbread, all right? Everybody got that? Now, why is that an issue? Here's the issue we have to ask ourselves. Did David actually violate the scriptural law or was he simply violating some Pharisaical tradition? Now, obviously, the Pharisees didn't exist at the time. So on one hand, you would say, does does this become something that the Pharisees would condemn later on? Or did David actually violate the law? Now, why why is that uh, a problem? I want you to think this through. Why would that be a problem? Let, let's go with the idea. David broke the scriptural law. He violated the law in Exodus, Leviticus, possibly Deuteronomy. I think it's Exodus and Leviticus. He, let's say he literally broke the law. He violated the law. What, what, what does that problem, does that create? Well, this would raise all kinds of questions because it would seem to imply that Jesus is saying, well, we can, my disciples can break the law because David break, broke the law. So this would create a really weird way of understanding, well, wait a minute, was it the actual law or why can you break the law? And so was the law not binding or it raises about a million questions about the law? Yes. Some would argue that this would be Jesus promoting, right? I would see if you know this term, Situational ethics. Everybody's familiar with that term? Right? Situational ethics. We, we have a tendency to use situational ethics, right? Just listen to your kids on Monday through Friday, right? Hey, why did you do that? Well, because... And then they will name something about the situation that would seem to excuse their actions. In some ways, some people could say that's what Jesus is doing. Wait, 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 wait. You're going to accuse my disciples. Remember what David did? If David could, we can. That, that's how your kids usually work it, right? My, my, my brother did it. Okay, well, well, we're not talking about your brother right now. But, but that, hey, that, that, that justifies my actions, correct? I mean, come on, we're all good with it, right? And trust me, adults do the same thing at work, right? So adults do it. But as Jesus promoting situational ethics, that would raise some serious questions. It raises questions about the law. It raises questions about what Jesus, the point Jesus is trying to make. There's a bunch of problems here that typically, and if you've been listening to the podcast, I spent three plus hours reviewing. I just, I just went on the internet and found random sermons on Mark 2. 
right? Just to see how the average church handled it. And nobody dealt with the problem. They act like it wasn't even a problem. And I'm like, I think there's a problem here, ladies and gentlemen. In fact, there's been entire books written on the problem. But sometimes in the average church, we don't deal with the actual issues of the text. Remember, I said this a lot this week in my podcast. Some churches, I want you to hear what I'm about to say, are more worried about delivering sermons than they are actually teaching the text. Sermons can actually be used to distract you from the text. And when a sermon keeps you from the text, that's not a good sermon. A good sermon should make you have a basically a confrontation with what? The text. And guess what? Sometimes you can't just do that with three points and make it nice and simple. You have to struggle with it. So we've got some questions here with the law, do we not? We've got questions about the law, about David. Why is Jesus using this cross-reference? We've got problems. But that doesn't even begin to describe the real problem. What's the next? And that first problem is David. What's the next problem? What is the next problem? It's found in verse 26. Yeah, look at verse 26. How he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar. Now, we, 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 we did realize this week that everyone says it differently, okay? But Abiathar, some say Abiathar, some say Abiathar. We've, we've heard it every way possible, but Abiathar seems to be the correct way. That name, I want you to write that name down. That name creates so many problems. So many problems. Let me explain how many problems it creates. All right? Everybody, everybody got it written down? In the introductory section of the 2005 best-selling book, Misquoting Jesus... That's the name of the book, Misquoting Jesus. I don't know if you can remember back to 2005, but everyone was talking about misquoting Jesus. And we talked about it a lot right here because I usually try to keep you up, up with what's going on. The author of the book was all over the place. He was on the news. He was everywhere. Everyone was talking about misquoting Jesus. Lots of college students were talking about misquoting Jesus. And the name of that author of that book, everyone knows... Bart Ehrman, yes. Teenagers back then in our church, we went to Dallas to listen to a debate with Bart Ehrman and Dr. Wallace. And I told everyone that Bart Ehrman was going to win said debate, and I was correct. Because he always wins the debates, because Christians agree to the wrong, oh, the way Christians handle Bart Ehrman, it's, it's, it's a train wreck. But in his book, Misquoting Jesus, in the introductory section, Bart Ehrman pointed to one verse in the Gospel of Mark as being the reason he renounced his belief in divine inspiration and abandoned Christianity entirely. And guess what verse led him to question the, tr the trustworthiness of the Bible and abandon Christianity? Mark 2, 26. Mark 2, 26. Now, how do we typically, how do Christians typically respond to those kinds of stories? 
we typically shrug our shoulders and go, well, he wasn't a believer in the first place. Who cares? Yeah, whatever. I don't see the problem. No big deal. And we can't act like that. We get, we get very defensive. When someone tells me something like that, now the first thing I'm going to try to figure out, and I'll, I'll just kind of work through this, whenever I hear someone's like, hey, I was reading my Bible in this verse and that's it, I was done with Christianity. Now on one hand, I tend to be very skeptical of such claims. And the reason why is I think most people who typically walk away from Christianity or abandon Christianity do not do so because of academic, well-thought-out reason. Why do you think most people abandon Christianity? There you go. The Bible has something against what they want, what they desire, or against their lifestyle. Sometimes it's a, look, and and to me, I respect the people who are just more honest, right? Hey, the Bible says this is wrong. I want to live that way. I'm not going to follow it. You've got my respect. But when you try to, oh, it's because of these great academic questions and you're like yeah, come on now sometimes the average person they haven't even read a book on any of the issues and it just drives me crazy so in most cases i'm skeptical however i will always set aside my skepticism because i want to give that person every opportunity to express their struggle their doubt their question and their frustration and sometimes you know what you find is that they were never allowed to express their doubt, their frustration and question, because many Christians get very upset when someone expresses their doubt and their frustration and their question. But Christianity should never be afraid of someone's doubt and their questions and their frustration. We don't have to get defensive. We don't always have to have an answer. You know, what we have to do is be willing to listen and say, you know what, that is difficult. That is hard. And, 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 and because there are things in the Bible that raises serious questions that it's okay to struggle with. I, I don't know if everyone realizes that. It's okay to question. It's okay to doubt. It's okay to struggle. It's perfectly okay. But for Bart Ehrman, this was, this was it. This was the thing that burnt everything down. This was the, the dam that broke and flooded everything out. This was, this was it. Let me read a little bit more about what happened. All right, here we go. In the introductory section of his 2005 best-selling book, Misquoting Jesus, Bart Ehrman pointed to one verse in the Gospel of Mark as being the reason for him renouncing his belief in divine inspiration of Scripture and leading to his abandonment of Christianity. The verse was Mark 2.26. A saying of Jesus narrated by the evangelist in the context of one of several episodes of conflict with religious authorities. In this case, the broader context concerns a dispute over the actions of Jesus' disciples in picking grain on the Sabbath, which appeared to the Pharisees to be in violation of the Torah. In response, Jesus appeals to the actions of whom? David, where? 1 Samuel 21, right? As both a precedent and a justification, concluding with pronouncements on the purpose of the Sabbath and about his own Christological identity and authority. In his reference to David taking the priest's showbread during his flight from Saul, Mark has Jesus saying that David's actions took place in the time of whom? Abiathar the high priest. Ehrman noted in this verse what, what many before him have observed, namely, 
in the text of 1 Samuel, the priest interacting with David is whom? Everyone go to 1 Samuel 21 and identify the priest who's interacting with David in 1 Samuel 21. I want everyone to find it for themselves. When everyone defined it for themselves. I heard someone say it. Ahimelech. Right? Does everyone see it? It's Ahimelech, right? Ahimelech. Is Ahimelech a, a Biathor? No, Ahimelech is who? The father of Ahimelech. All right? There are different people. Would everyone agree? All right, so immediately you're going to be like, whoa. Now, 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 I want everyone to pay attention to me. I want everyone to pay attention. Now, on these kinds of messages, what everyone does is everyone starts running back there trying to figure it all out. We're going to work together on this, okay? We're going to go through a process to learn how to deal with these difficulties. But let's listen to what, everything that happened with uh, Bart Ehrman here, all right? Ehrman, Bart Ehrman noted in this verse what many before him has observed, that namely that in the text of 1 Samuel, the priest interacting with David was Ahimelech, the father of Abiathar, and not Abiathar himself, who would only later become high priest. After attempting to develop a solution to the problem. Now, on one, I want to make sure everyone hears that. What did Bart Ehrman do when he found the problem? He tried to develop a solution. He tried to come up with a solution. That should be applauded, right? He tried. And he tried. And he tried. And he finally concluded. What do you think he concluded? That the Gospel of Mark was in error. And the floodgates opened. Ehrman concluded that the text of the New Testament is untrustworthy, and he then went on to become a very, very, very famous person to promote the idea that the New Testament is not trustworthy. A, a Bible skeptic. Right? He still teaches, you know, I, I, I think he still teaches at a university, I think it's North Carolina, where on basically issues with the Bible. And young college kids are confronted with his materials. They're raised in the church, right? And all they ever got in church were pizza parties, lock-ins, and fun, okay? Never was ever actually confronted with these issues. They heard sermons in Mark 2, 23 to 26, but guess what the pastors did? Never dealt with it. If you, if you listen to my reviews of, all, of the three sermons that we chose randomly, I just chose them randomly, not one person mentioned any of the issues that we have addressed this morning in the first, what, 29 minutes of this Sunday school hour. Not one. They didn't even deal with it. Ignored it. In fact, one went so far to when they referred to 1 Samuel 20, 21, they didn't even read it. They just said, well, the, the, they just referred to the priest in 1 Samuel 21, but did not give his name. That's intentional deception in a sermon to keep people from the problem. That is not acceptable in any church. When you deal with this text, you've got to go, we got an issue here. Did David break the law? Wait, we got a problem. 
This is Abiathar, but 1 Samuel says Amalek. Now, the average, most Christians don't care about these problems. They shrug their shoulders. They don't care. Well, you may not care, but you have a responsibility to care for a couple of reasons. One, if you show that the, if you believe the Bible is important, then you should care about every word, yes? And number two, you should care because it's your, who's going to answer the questions of people who have questions? Supposed to be believers. But believers don't like to equip themselves to have the answers because what do you do when you run into a conflict with someone at work over this? Oh, I'll go find a book. I'll go find a podcast episode. No, you have a responsibility to provide an answer. You do. Remember, what's the purpose of the church? To equip you for what? Ministry. The the answer when you run into a problem is, well, let me go find someone else for... No, it's your job to be able to talk to them about it and work through it. So, we have two problems. Let's go through this again. What are the two problems? David, number two. Abiathar, right? Everybody got that? Those are the two problems. So, here we go. You ready? We have got two problems. We're going to start with Abiathar, since that's the one that created basically Bart Ehrman. All right, then we'll circle back around to the David one. This is not going to be fast, but I I want to teach you a lot of different concepts here. So here's what you do. When you are confronted with a problem like this, what is the first step in beginning to develop a solution? Imagine you're in hermeneutics class, seminary, right? Seminary, I, I just walked in, and I'm like, today... Your, your issue is, for, is Mark 2.26, and you're not leaving this classroom until you find a solution. And if you don't find a solution, you fail the entire semester. Right? Okay, if you were in school, that would, that would scare you. Okay, here you don't. You're like, yeah, whatever. What are you going to do to me? I'm not going to care. Okay, but you're, you're stuck here, all right? So just as well participate, okay? It makes the time go faster if you participate. So before we do anything, I need you to tell me what are the steps we use to find the solution. Oh, come on. All right, someone said outline. Anything else? Come on. Do what? Look at Twyla. Twyla always has the right answer. Right? And I, I, she may be assuming to the first Samuel passage, which then she's wrong. Okay, okay. So, not, what, what do we need? To, where are we? We're in the Gospel of Mark, right? What happens over and over in the Gospels? Same stories repeated different times, right? So, we've got to collect all of the tellings of this story. And what do we need to see in the retelling of these stories? Do they all agree in every detail or is there any differences? So guess what we're going to do? You can work with one another. First, we've got to find out all the references, okay? Does everybody already know all the references? I hear someone saying, if I know where I put my notebook. Oh, right, here we go. First, we have Matthew 12. Everyone go to Matthew 12 and look at verses 1 through 8 and tell me if that's the same story, same account. Matthew 12, when you get there, say, amen, yes, you're right, something, applaud, do something.
All right, I got one saying it's the same, all right? I got one that's saying, okay, Seth is clapping. All right, go to Luke 6. Go to Luke 6. Is it the same story? I believe it starts in verse 1. I'm not looking at my references, so I'm going by memory. All right, yes, all right. And then we got Mark 2, starting in verse 23. All right, so you know what you need. You need a blank sheet of paper. How many columns do you need? Three columns. We need three columns. We need three columns. All right, let's start in Matthew. Matthew what? Matthew 12? Okay, Matthew 12. Everyone go to Matthew 12. And I, and I want, now, listen to me. Okay, before, we, now before you look at Matthew 12, I want everyone to pay attention to me. Okay, what I'm trying to show you is what you, this is the responsibility you have whenever you come to these kind of passages that are difficult. What, you're, you know, let's all be honest. What is your first uh, reaction typically when you're confronted with these stories? Either you ignore them or number two, you go try to find what someone else came up with. Stop doing that. Whose responsibility is it to study the text? Yours. Now, if you're Catholic, you go find the magisterial answer. In Protestantism, we still do the same thing. We just find different popes. No, your job is to figure out the text. Why is it so important for you to figure out the the text? Because if you study the text yourself... Then when you go listen to everyone else, you'll know, well, wait a minute, that doesn't work because I've looked at all of this. It protects you. The more you study, the more you are protected. Your lack of study makes you vulnerable to be manipulated or to be given a false solution. Does that make sense? Yes? All right, right, here we go. Three columns. All right, three columns. The first one we're going to look at is Matthew chapter 12. Now, what, what are we going to do here? What do you think we need to do? We got three columns. What are we going to do when we read Matthew 12? All, all we're going to do, first of all, is an observational exercise. Remember, how does, let, let, let's remind everyone, how does Bible uh, interpretation work? What do you start with? Observation, observation. You can't interpret what you haven't observed. The quality of your observation determines the quality of your interpretation. You guys know this stuff, right? So we got to just do basic observation, right? We don't want to try to interpret anything. So we're going to go through this and I'm going to, we're going to figure out the main points you need to write down in your first column, right? Here we go. Matthew chapter 12, verse 1. And at that time, Jesus went on the Sabbath day through the corn and his disciples were hungered and began to pluck the ears of corn and to eat. First observation, Jesus and disciples walking through the field, hungry, pluck corn on the Sabbath day. You can just, however you want to summarize that, as simple as you can. You can just do it bullet points. Jesus' disciples walking through a field, Hungry, pluck corn on the Sabbath. Right? Everybody see all of that? Is that a, is that a fair summary? 
Do it in bullet statements, just very short statements so that you can see it. Jesus and disciples, hungry, walking through a field, pluck corn on the Sabbath day. Next, Pharisees. Question if that action was lawful according, well, was it lawful? We'll just go there. The Pharisees question if that action was lawful. You could even make it even more blunt if you want. The Pharisees accuse them of doing that which is unlawful. It's not even really much of a question, is it? Right? I guess it is a question. Why do you do that which is unlawful? But the implication is that what they're doing is what? 100% unlawful. Agreed? All right. Number three. Jesus answers by doing what? Have you not read? He immediately, Jesus answers by pointing them to 1 Samuel 21. Everyone agree with that? Yes? Okay. And Jesus points them to the action of whom? David. So we've got what, verse 1, we got verse 2, we got verse 3. Jesus points them to 1 Samuel 21, points them to the action of David. Right? Verse 4. How he entered into the house of God, did eat the shoe bread, which was not lawful for him to eat, neither for them which were with him, but only for the priest. Right? Jesus retells uh, the story in 1 Samuel 21 and verse 4. All right? There's no specific thing. It's pretty, pretty straightforward. Agreed? Verse 5. Or have you not read? Now, wait a minute. What just happened here? He gives a different, he makes a different reference, does he not? Does everyone agree that that's a different reference? What is he referencing in verse 5? Numbers 28? What, what Numbers 28? Do we have specific verses? Verse 28, 9. So you, now you want to write down Jesus references Numbers 28, right? Verse 9. Numbers 28, verse 9. Or have you not read in the law how that on the Sabbath day the priest in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? Wow. The Matthew passage even raises more questions about what the law said or didn't say, correct? But what, what is missing? Abiathar is missing. Abiathar is nowhere to be found here. Does everybody does agree? Is, he, is his name mentioned? No, not at all. Not even mentioned in any way, shape, or form. That's very important. All right, verse 6. But I say unto you that in this place is one greater than the temple. But if you had known what this meaneth, I will have mercy and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord even on the Sabbath day. What does Jesus do in verse 6 and 7? He offers, in a sense, kind of his conclusion, but it, is it different than what we Well, we'll find out when we get to Mark. Jesus offers his conclusion. What's the basic uh, elements of his conclusion? Someone is greater than the temple here. Agreed? 
And what's the second? Mercy and not sacrifice. Someone is greater than the temple, mercy, not sacrifice. And then third part of his conclusion, the Son of Man is the Lord over the Sabbath, or of the Sabbath. Agreed? That's the kind of his three-part conclusion. Someone is greater than the temple, mercy, not sacrifice. The Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Is that a fair observation? Did we miss anything in that observational exercise? If you see anything you think we miss, we need to make sure we write it down in the column. Nothing? You, does everyone feel confident that that was a very good observational exercise? Okay, I'm going to say that that was an a, a, a enthusiastic yes. All right? Now, if we miss something, it's your fault, not mine. Right, everybody understand that? Okay, good, because we want to make sure that there's blame when, we, when this all falls apart. Okay, <laughs> right. Now, we could go to Mark. Well, we'll just go to Mark. Let's go, we go to Matthew. Let's go to Mark. Mark chapter 2. Second column. Column number 2. Mark chapter 2, verse 23. Mark 2, start in verse 23. All right, everybody there? Verse 23, and it came to pass. They went through the cornfields on the Sabbath day, and his disciples began as they went to pluck his ear, the ears of corn. All right, what do we have in verse 23? Jesus and his disciples in a cornfield. It's the Sabbath, and they pluck to eat. What does it not say in verse 23? Did, uh, did, did Matthew say they were hungry? Does 23, Mark, say they were hungry? No. So don't write down that they were hungry on your Mark column. Okay? But I bet you some of you just kind of possibly did that just, right? But you can't, right? Matthew says they're hungry. Mark doesn't. Doesn't mean that Mark, it doesn't mean that they're not hungry. It just means that when you're observing the text, you observe what? What's there, not what is somewhere else. Okay? Does it say they were hungry anywhere? Make sure I'm... Do what? Ooh, good point. They just plucked the ears of corn. All right, that's good. So in Mark, don't say that they ate. That's a good... Thank you for correcting that. I, I see, I just threw that in there. It doesn't say that they actually ate it. This important question, in Matthew, does it say Jesus ate it? All right. Right. Okay. So the, the so in Mark does not say Jesus ate, and Matthew does not say Jesus ate. I just think that's important to know. I'm glad someone pointed that out because uh, that's a good observation. All right. So what what we have here is so far just that they're in the field. They walk on the they're walking through it on the Sabbath, and they pluck the ears of corn. That's all we have in Mark. Okay. Verse twenty four. Pharisees said unto him, Behold, why do, the, why do they on the Sabbath day do that which is not lawful? The Pharisees say, basically accuse or ask them why they're doing that which is unlawful. That's almost identical, is it not? That's almost absolutely identical. All right. Verse 25. What does Jesus do? Points them to 1 Samuel 21. Agreed? Points them to the action of whom? David. 
All right. Verse 26. Jesus says that what David did happened during the days of whom? Abiathar, right? Everybody see that? That's very important because that's missing from where? Matthew. All right, what is Jesus' conclusion in Mark? The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. And that the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The only agreement in the conclusions in Matthew and Mark is what? That the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. The other points that Jesus makes in Matthew are not recorded here in Mark. Would everyone agree? All right. Any other observation in Mark that we're possibly missing? Nope. Everybody feels we've got a good observation? All right, go to Luke. Go to Luke. Now we go to Luke. Luke chapter 6, verse 1. And it came to pass on the second Sabbath after the first. Stop right here. What do we have in Luke that's missing in Matthew and Mark? We have a specific time reference, do we not? We have a specific time reference. We'll see if that, I don't know if that makes any difference. Just note that this supposedly occurred on the second Sabbath after the first. Okay, say that. Uh, interesting. Okay, but we'll go, we'll go with the King James, but that's good. We'll, we'll have to get to the textual variation or the translation variations, I should say. All right. That, thank you for bringing that up, uh, Emma. Okay. All right, so we have a, a, a more specific time reference. That he went through the cornfields and his disciples plucked the ears of corn and did eat, rubbing them in their hands. Now, why is that significant? Yeah, the other three doesn't say, but... Luke adds three actions. What are the three actions he outlines? Plucking, eating, and rubbing. Why? Why do you think he gives those three details? Because that could possibly call their uh, actions into question even more so because it appears that they're working, harvesting, they're, they're doing a number of things on the Sabbath that was considered wrong by the Pharisees that they were doing work. So he, he really adds some great detail, does he not? He gives us a, a, a greater detail on the timing and greater detail on the action. They, and it actually says, and eat. It mentions that they, does it say that they were hungry? Matthew's the one who goes with the hungry, right? Okay. Verse 2. And certain of the Pharisees said unto them, Why do you do that which is not lawful to do on the Sabbath day? Isn't it interesting that the questioning or the accusation by the Pharisees is almost identical in all three? That part is identical, is it not? There's no question about That's identical. All right, so far so good? All right, trying to, we got we to get to a certain point in the first hour because uh, it's going to take us forever to work through all of this. All right, next, verse 3. Jesus answered and said, have you not read? All three, Jesus says the exact same words. Have you not read? 
Why is that significant? We're going a little bit beyond the observation, but that's okay. Why do you think that's significant to the story? It's almost a little sarcastic. Have you not read? They're the Pharisees for crying out loud. They're supposed to be the experts in it. Have you not read? Have you not read? It's also interesting that Jesus is pointing what? He's pointing them to Scripture, is he not? That's kind of interesting. Have you not read so much as that what David did when when himself was unhungered and they which were with him? How he went into the house of God, did take and eat the shoe bread, and gave also to them that were with him, which is not lawful to eat, but for the priest alone. What is missing? Abiathar is missing. Oh, come on, Mark. You're, if Mark would just have left out Abiathar, we would not have a problem here, right? Mark is the one who creates the whole problem. But Jesus gives the basic same story, Yes. Goes in and he he takes the showbread. What's the conclusion Luke gives? And he said unto them that the son of 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 man is the Lord also of the Sabbath. That's it. (laughs) He just gives one conclusion. Matthew gives how many basically three concluding lessons? Doesn't he give three? Luke or uh, Mark gives two, right? Or one. He gives one and Luke gives one. Oh, he does give two? What are the two in Mark? Oh, the Sabbath was made for man. Okay, all right, very good. Mark, and vice versa, right, okay. All right, so two, so three lessons, two lessons, one lesson. That's interesting, right? Do they all agree on at least one lesson? What's the lesson they all agree on? Son of the man is Lord of the Sabbath. They all agree on that, right? Do we miss any other observational things. I think we did a pretty decent job. Now, what we just did there, guess what? Do you think the everyday people, Christians, do what we just did? Absolutely not. They don't even take the time to do that. But guess what they will do? They'll argue in church about what the right answer is. You can't argue if you're not doing the work. It's just that simple. Okay, so what does the, uh, looking at the cross-references and doing the observation, does anything jump out at you as like, this is the most significant thing we found in this observational exercise? What is the most significant thing you think we discovered in this observational exercise that has taken us about 20 minutes? Okay, the most, I think this is obviously very critical. Abiathar is only mentioned once and only in Mark. That's, that's super important, right? The other ones leave that out. Why is that, why is that important? If the other ones also mentioned it, right, and maybe added more detail or more interaction, that would only make the problem much more difficult. All we have to do is figure out why in the world is Mark mentioning Abiathar? That's all we have to figure out. At least the other ones don't add to the problem. Or make it more complicated or more difficult. So in some ways, you're a little bit relieved. Okay, okay, good. Whew. I've only, I only got one thing to try to figure out here. Now, some of the others may add to other problems because in Matthew, Jesus gives another detail about the whole law thing. So that, he, we got more problems in Matthew dealing with the law. So I will say the first most important thing is Abiathar is only mentioned in Mark. The second very important observation is Matthew adding another 
example of possibly breaking the law. That, those are two very big ones. Does anyone see a third? I think a third major observation is that Matthew gives us three lessons. Because those lessons are important in understanding the application of the text. Agreed? Okay. All right. Anything else? Anything else jumps out at you? If something is significant to you, go ahead and say so. All right. Everybody's good? Agreed? All right. Now, what's the, let's see, uh, what's the next step? What time is it? How much time do we have? All right, we, we'll have to stop here shortly. I'll just ask you, what's the next step? What do you think the next step is? Come on, Twyla, what's the next step? <laughs> oh, th- good job, Lydia. Now we got to go do an observational exercise on the one text Jesus points everyone to, which is 1 Samuel 21. And we're not going to do that right now. We'll start that in the next hour. Okay? Any questions? We didn't get to the Bible dictionary, but we got to do all the observational work. Why, why do we wait so long to get to the Bible dictionary? Because we're just running to someone else, to, to information from someone else. What you, I cannot stress this enough. It's your job. I, 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 what, what makes me mad is that on one hand, when Christians get kind of cornered, they always, they always fall back to this excuse. Well, I'm not a pastor. I didn't go to Bible college. I didn't go to seminary. So what do you expect of me? Here's what should be expected of you if you're not a Catholic. You know the text. Right? Everyone can know the text. And what does that always protect you from? Anyone mishandling the text are twisting the text. The more you know the text, the more, look, what, here's what you'll find out. If you know the text, just think about this. Knowledge of the, of the text will do the following from you. I'll, get, I'll try to give you some practical lessons. Knowledge of the text will do the, a couple of things for you. Number one, it will immediately alert you when you're listening to a sermon that is ignoring it, not actually dealing with the text. You're going to be like, wait, they just completely skipped this. How do they not see the problem? And those three, three plus hours of sermon review I did on the podcast this week, guess what? I, I was about to scream at all of them because I'm like, nobody's going to deal with the actual wording of the text. And these were not churches that were doing topical messages. This was supposedly verse by verse expositions of Mark. That's not verse by verse. Because if you know the text, as soon as, like, I kept making the joke, like if I visited a church and you were sitting next to me and I'm like, and all of a sudden they said, we're going to be a Mark 2, 23 to 26, I would immediately reach over and punch you in the arm and go, I bet you $50, $50, they're not going to deal with the text. Right? I'm not saying I should promote gambling, but it's an easy way for me to make $50 because in most cases, I can guarantee you the church is not going to do what? Deal with the text. How do I know that? One, by listening to, I don't know how many countless sermons on Mark 2 that I'm now, I don't ever want to listen to another one. But number two, it's just because that's what churches do. 
that give you sermons. But you know, but here's the thing. My knowledge of Mark 2, 23, 26 immediately alerts me when I'm listening to a sermon like, there's a problem there. You mentioned Abiathar and then you just acted like there was no problem. Don't you see that there's a problem? Wait a minute. Don't you see that there's a problem that Jesus seems to be using a text that says David broke the law to justify their breaking of the law? That raises some serious questions, right? Your knowledge of the text alerts you when someone is ignoring the text. Number two, your knowledge of the text alerts you when someone is mishandling the text. So much mishandling of the text is where, like when you listen to a sermon and, you know, they're in Jeremiah saying, the the plans I have for you to bless you and to prosper you, you should immediately be like, we're not the ones in Babylonian captivity. That's not about us. Correct? Right? So the first thing knowledge of the text does alerts you when someone's avoiding it or ignoring it. Number two, when they're mishandling it. And number three, what else does it do? Knowledge of the text gives you the tools to properly interpret it. You can't interpret what you don't know. The more you know of the text, the better you can interpret the text, correct? Yes? Because what happens? The more you know, what does that tend to do with your possibilities of interpretation? And then you're like, oh, I only have three. You start off with what? Maybe a thousand. The more you know of the text, you're like, well, that just doesn't work. And why doesn't it not work? Because in many cases, the text won't allow it. And can an interpretation ever go? Can can you ever come up with an interpretation that the text doesn't allow? The answer is no. Right? Does that make sense? All right, there's probably more I could come up with, but I just want you to see why knowledge of the text is so important. All right, any questions? Does anybody think they know a solution yet to either problem? If you do, that, then you're, you're already wrong because you've already been trying to come up with a solution when you're supposed to have been participating with us, okay? So you're already doing it wrong, okay? We have to work together, right? So in the next hour, we go to where? 1 Samuel 21, and what are we going to do? We're going to make a fourth column. All right, all right, isn't it fun? You're going, what did you do in church? I made four columns. And they're going to like, what did you do? And like, yeah, we just, we just read the text and made observation. What? It wasn't uplifting and positive? Okay. No, no, not really. Okay. All right. All right, let's pray. Lord God, it's your word. It's not ours. Forgive us when we mishandle it. Forgive us when we ignore it. And Lord, help us stay committed to finding out the truth about this text so that we can avoid the difficulties it presents. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...